You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. And Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me on what is the last episode of 2019 is my regular co-host David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? I'm recovering from a gall uh, bladder surgery removal. Thanks very much for asking, Giles. Uh, (laughs) Too much information already, David. That may be a little too much information for some of our listeners, but I trust they're all taking an interest. This may be the last episode, but uh, I think with our special guest today and and the topic, we're going out with a bit of a bang. No, fantastic. Absolutely. Um, and um, look, uh, many people have um, heard um, or read particularly on um, the pages of Renew Economy and in our podcast about the Integrated System Plan. This is the 20-year blueprint uh, that's been um, put together by the Australian Energy Market Operator. And for me, it's a very important document, one, because it's the first time that anyone's actually come up with a serious plan about you know how to manage the energy transition and what could possibly be achieved. And two, it sets out a range of scenarios, some of which are actually something to do with what we need to do to address climate change and to respect the science and what the experts say we need to do. So on that note, I'm delighted to welcome Alex Onehouse. He's the Chief Systems Designer for Australian Energy Market Operator and um, also Head of Engineering. Alex, um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Giles and David, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, look, the draft ISP was released uh, late last week. Now, the final version is going to come out around about mid-2020. Just to sort of set the broad scene for our listeners, just tell us very briefly about why um, it is so important to have this ISP. Look, uh, Giles, as as you and many of your listeners um, know, Australia's energy system is transforming at a rapid pace. And... uh, That is not a question of if that's going to happen. I think we know it is going to happen. So we really need to prepare the system to ensure that this transition happens as smooth as possible and, frankly, um, at the lowest cost uh, as it's possible. That requires us to actually get a lot of things right. We need to get um, the market design right. We need to get the DER integration right. And we need to get um, the underpinning Um, system infrastructure, uh, right? So that's the transmission system, the distribution system, and all of the technologies that get into that. Um, We believe if we do that, we can actually achieve this goal of a a smooth, low-cost transition in the best interest of consumers. And uh, as you've mentioned, this is only going to be a, or this is currently a draft document. So we, we actually really look forward to getting input from all stakeholders in the energy sector, be it consumers, generators, people who provide innovative technologies, etc., cetera, uh, to help us all make this better and make this a real plan uh, for the future of Australia. 
I know David's going to jump in very quickly. Um, David, no, let me have one more question before we jump into some of the details. Just um, before we go into those details, let's just talk about the various scenarios that you've actually considered for this ISP. Now, they range from slow, which sounds sort of catastrophic. It basically means that no nothing much happens, even less than is anticipated um, from some of the current um, policies, particularly the state policies. Then you've got a central scenario, which basically you know responds to what the current policies are and how that might translate out to for another 20 years. But then it gets really interesting. You're talking about a technology-driven, um, uh, more rapid change. You're talking about a consumer-driven, more rapid change, which is more distributed generation, things like rooftop solar, um, batteries and electric vehicles. And then you talk about this step change, which is the one that actually does represent um, you know, um, what's needed for the science. And I guess that's what we're all interested in. Um, so just tell me a, a, a brief thing about these different scenarios and why you looked at um, those five. Of course, the fundamental challenge with actually planning for the future is that we actually don't know what is going to happen in the future. And that's why we had to adopt a scenario-based approach um, to give us really the full range of possible outcomes. And as we are then identifying solutions that are robust under all or at least most of those outcomes, we actually have then greater confidence to make the investments and take the action that is necessary to prepare the country. So uh, you have you have already provided a snapshot of the different scenarios that we have uh, used. So sort of our, our starting point is what we call the central scenario. That is really an extrapolation of the business as usual that we are currently in as a nation. That includes all of the um, current state and federal policies and, and so a reasonable evolution of costs. But... Um, depending on choices that both consumers will make um, and politicians will make, we could end up on different uh, scenarios. So we could have a much greater degree of integration of distributed energy resources. We could have a greater acceleration um, of the adoption of large-scale resources, or we could take a decision to um, really um, deliver uh, Australia's fair share towards the Paris target, which is really um, limiting temperature rises to uh, 1.2 to 2 degrees um, by the end of the century. Um, and and then I think we also sort of, to test the other extreme case, we've looked at a slow scenario, what would actually happen if, if the whole transition slowed down, if we extended existing plants, if we really don't care about emissions reduction, how would that look like? And that really gave us this range of five scenarios that built the foundation of the ISP. So, Alex, um, I, I congratulate you, first of all, in, in the amount of material and the process that you've adopted for all of this. For anyone that's interested, you can download spreadsheets uh, with a lot of numbers in them. Uh, and there is a, a very large appendices document that has, uh, you know, for instance, a scoring system for the renewable energy zones potential that I, that I want to come back to. But the main uh, thrust uh, is, I think, a least regrets approach as opposed to probabilistic modelling. And, and, and as I think you, the document explains, this is trying to work out what will be the lowest cost thing, even if the chosen or central scenario doesn't, doesn't turn out to be true. But in coming to those least regrets thing, you've used net present value modelling, but it doesn't seem to me, and you could correct me if I'm wrong on this, that a carbon price or a carbon cost has been incorporated 
in any of the scenarios under any any, any stage. And it seems to me that not doing uh, carbon is potentially, or accounting for it is potentially the biggest regret of all. So I wondered if I could just ask you about that and uh, then to start with. Yeah, thanks, David. Uh, carbon certainly accounted for in, in our scenarios. Uh, uh, the degree of decarbonization of the energy sector is actually one of the two main dimensions that we've used in creating the scenarios. Um, the other dimension is really the degree of decentralization. So what we have done to account for uh, decarbonization of the energy sector, we have actually used carbon budgets, um, which are outlined in the document. So we have uh, identified what is the least cost trajectory of the energy uh, sector to meet a certain carbon budget. And those carbon budgets vary depending on scenario. Uh, so uh, we talked earlier about the step change scenario. And obviously that carbon budget is then consistent with the um, NEM energy sector uh, taking an appropriate share of the Australian emissions abatement task and then Australia taking an, a sort of a proportionate um, uh, making a proportionate contribution to the global abatement task. And, and, and that carbon budget effectively drives the emissions outcomes. Uh, so that's just a different way of, of modeling it. And it, um, it leads to uh, an optimal outcome. And it is basically agnostic as to what is this precise mechanism that we are going to use to um, uh, account for emissions reductions, but it still gives you a very accurate outcome. So even if we were to uh, have a shadow price for carbon, you, you don't think any of the NPV decisions or least regret would change? No, what, what we have uh, well and truly tried to do in this work is to achieve a certain emissions outcome um, at the least cost to the nation. And if you design your pricing mechanism well, it should actually exactly lead you to that least cost outcome. That's fantastic to know that. Now, I'll have to hand back to Giles again, which is a shame in some ways, because I'd like to talk for a couple of hours. But uh, <laughs> um, could I just ask one of the many scenarios and little bits and pieces that, you know, events that you've tried to account for in this least regrets approach. Uh, one of them would be an early closure of your lawn and or uh, a, a loss of Portland load in Victoria. When I was looking at the uh, ramp rate assumption that you're forecasting in some of the scenarios, ramp rate, that, that's the rate that a power station can increase or reduce its output. It gets to about 40 megawatts a minute in as early as 2025 in, in Victoria, which is about uh, 2,400 megawatts an hour. I, I, do you actually think a power station like your lawn can, can cope with that, that share of its, its share in Victoria of ramping up and down? It seems to me it's likely to struggle quite a bit. I'm, I'm happy with the black coal ramping, but, but not so much the brown coal. So I think you're right that uh, a lot of, in particular, some of the existing large um, coal-fired generators are struggling to provide the ramp rates uh, that we expect to see in the system going forward. That is why when you look at the plan, we actually see a range of diverse solutions needing to come in to uh, basically balance the system. And there are certainly technologies that can provide much faster ramp rates. I mean, uh, as you know, uh, batteries are 
phenomenally fast uh, at providing ramping services. And that's also the reason why we see batteries coming in both as large scale solutions, but also as um, virtual power plants that connect a large number of, of distributed batteries into something that actually makes them best and optimal contribution to the system. There's a lot of discussion, um, um, Alex, about um, the future of coal plants. I mean, um, David has um, David has just raised the issue of Yulon and the um, and, and the ramp rates. Uh, the, from the, from your point of view, uh, you know, some people are talking about extending the life of coal-fired plants. Is there any case to um, extend the life of coal-fired plants? Um, is that likely, or is it more likely that some of these plants will actually um, close earlier than advertised? Because um, you've got this very famous graph, which is reproduced all the time, which shows a sort of steady exit of coal generators. You know, a couple in New South Wales in the 2020s, a lot of others in the 2030s, and, and there's a couple that hang on to the 2040s, Loyang A and Loyang B. Um, yeah, so, so back to my question. Do you think any any will be life will actually be extended, or do you think it's more likely that they'll actually uh, be closed early? So, look, at, first of all, at the highest level, and you referred to this retirement graph. I think it is a fact of life that um, these generators that we have built 30, 40, some even 50 years ago, are reaching their end of their technical life, and and you know, as any old plant they will need to be replaced. And that's really one of the main driving forces in this whole integrated system plan that we need to find a way to replace them in a cost-effective way. So um, the, the biggest risk that we, I think, need to prepare for, and that's also the case that we're making in the report, is what happens if, if one of those plants come out early? Um, because that's actually the challenging situation for us to manage, because we believe to have a smooth and non-disruptive transition for consumers in the system, we actually need to have the resources in place that can replace those plants before those plants come out. And that's why you mentioned the example of your lawn. We are making the case to build um, one of uh, the new big interconnectors, the Victoria to New South Wales West interconnector, um, that links Victoria to Snowy and, and New South Wales that would actually enable to not only unlock uh, renewable energy on its path, but also some of the um, dispatchable capacity from Snowy and, and maybe more broadly from, from New South Wales. So we believe um, that is actually the most cost-effective way of, uh, of addressing it. Um, look, there may be under some circumstances consideration for extension of plant, but um, when you look at some of the commercial decisions that, for instance, um, AGL is making around Liddell, that sounds like it's 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 not only um, a costly decision. Um, there are safety implications of that, and um, there is also the question around reliability of those plants because we're we're talking about a plant that's uh, actually very old, um, and that may then not even perform up to the standard that we expected to perform, especially if we're going into, for instance, um, a hot summer. So, um, yes, that may happen uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, but I think all in all, I think as a nation, we need to prepare for the exit. We need to find a sensible way of replacing those, um, those plants, and we need to be prepared for some of them maybe going early for commercial reasons or for technical reasons. Alex, you, you mentioned commercial reasons, and in, in a sense, this uh, your ISP is doesn't really 
think about how how results will be achieved. It just maps out what uh, is the lowest cost way of achieving them. I think uh, that it ends up um, having more solar than wind development over time. And yet when I look at the market at the moment, I see that utility solar has to compete with rooftop solar, which which you forecast, you forecast a lot, the ISP forecast a lot of growth for rooftop. But as far as utility solar goes, if, if it's not going to achieve the right load weighted price to, to earn a return, and, and that's what it looks like at the moment to me, um, won't we see a lot more wind developed in, in the real world? Or And how what sort of market mechanism is going to be required to get these lowest cost resources actually developed? I know that's not your exact area, but, but still it's important in the real world. So it's a it's a great question, David, and and you are absolutely right in your observation that we are we are making the assumption that we have a perfect market mechanism and and rational actors in this market that drive the lowest cost system solution in place. Um, I think while the current market design has served us well, uh, I don't think it's necessarily the right market design going forward. Um, that's why. I think in, in other contexts, uh, AMO is actually very closely working with the other market bodies and, and the ESB on the on the market 2025 framework to um, augment and improve the market, for instance, by introducing um, a day ahead market that um, puts more value on dispatchability and other system services that will be um, very important going forward. So that's, that's a must do, and that's, a, I think, also highlighted in the plan. Um, in terms of the split between wind and solar, when you look at one of the changes between the 2018 um, ISP and, and this uh, draft 2020 ISP, we are actually seeing um, a greater role for wind um, for some of the reasons that you have outlined. Um, I think the trick with renewable resources is it's all about getting the balance right between the resources so that ultimately the output profile of the aggregated sum of generators matches in the best possible way the demand profile. So we need the minimum amount of, of firming services and, and dispatchability going forward. And that's that's what um, the plan suggests of what, what that, um, to the best of our knowledge, what that optimal mix is. I'll hand back to, to Giles after just one more question, and this is a bit of a technical question. You can say anything you like, and, and, and it'll be the right answer as far as I'm concerned, because I don't know any better. But it, it seems to me, I've always thought that transmission planning was like going to take a lot longer than transmission building than, than wind and solar. And you could have predicted that easily three, three years ago, and, and so it's proving today. Uh, and, and we still haven't got one of these new transmission projects actually out of the AER yet, just as an observation. Uh, but uh, the other thing that it seems to me is that inevitably, as we uh, build more wind and solar, we're going to have to move to a completely different control system, uh, you know, where, where, um, um, uh, where and system strength considerations, where we're going to be dependent increasingly on power electronics uh, to do to, for um, um, uh, grid-forming inverters and, and using batteries a lot more in the control system and also, according to what I read in various university seminars that I don't understand at all, it's all going to be a lot more autonomous and decentralised control in, in this version of the world and this fits in with the distributed 
uh, thing which Australia is a leader, lead, world leader in. And, but it doesn't seem to me that the ISP really has any contemplation of that. It's all more about putting more uh, uh, condensers in and, and, and stuff that doesn't seem to uh, have this, what I see as the digital future in, in its mind at all. Okay, so uh, look, that's that's another two quite important point. Let's let's take them separately. I think the, your first point was around um, the time it takes to build transmission and um, the long sort of regulatory process that is required to to justify this investment. I think that's actually one of the big problems uh, in designing the future energy system, that these projects have long lead times, are actually quite costly projects. And I think what has happened historically is, for whatever reason, we have actually shied away from making this these decisions. And so we are now paying the price for that. And we have, unfortunately, some areas now in the NEM that are very, very congested already. Um, uh, so northwestern Victoria, southwestern New South Wales, which has fabulous renewable resource, but um, a really poor network infrastructure is a, is a case in point. Um, I think we are uh, in a fortunate position now with the actionable ISP rules that the ESB is planning to bring in um, by June next year. By the time we publish the final version of this ISP, we can actually then uh, use that framework to um, accelerate the delivery uh, of uh, really essential uh, transmission and other services projects uh, to ensure we have actually a, a network and a system um, that can take the very significant amount of renewables. I mean, we are projecting over 30 gigawatts of renewables in almost all scenarios uh, by 2040, which is a, which is a lot. Um, so to have a system ready for that. Um, to your second point, um, I'm really sorry if if um, sort of some of the innovative aspects um, didn't come out in the document. Maybe that's something that we need to bring out further. Uh, but that's certainly uh, top of mind for us um, at the moment when we talk about system strength remediation, sort of unfortunately, uh, synchronous condensers are a technology that is available, that is proven for maybe a hundred years, um, and that can be used today. But I completely agree with you, and we are actually very grateful for some of the interactions we have, uh, uh, in particular with ARENA and also the CFC around actually trialing new solutions. Um, we have uh, actually are in early stages of discussion to use grid forming or grid, grid supporting invest, uh, inverters um, to address some of the system strength issues. And I completely agree with you, that is the future. Um, I also agree with you that um, the new system requires completely new control strategies, um, which we're actually working on. So when you look at section C1.2 uh, in the report that outlines what is required from a technical um, integration, for example, of the ER, which is one of the, frankly, most exciting aspects uh, of change in the system. So we really need to work on making sure we have the right regulations in place. We need to have the right standards in place. We need to build uh, digital platforms that can um, operate this uh, equipment and then um, also need to ensure that at a distribution level, 
we have um, the right technologies in place to really maximize the use of, of DER in the system as just one example. And uh, I've actually seen a, a really a great example of the virtual power plant um, that uh, we are participating in uh, the trial that's, I think, supported by um, ARENA as well, uh, that provided um, a very significant uh, frequency response when um, uh, the Colgan Creek power station uh, in Queensland tripped. So uh, that was, I think, for me, a, a real highlight uh, to see how these new technologies and new control uh, strategies can do exactly what we need them to do and keep the system stable and secure. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that um, particular example, Alex, because um, that fascinated me as well, particularly because um, those um, those distributed energy resources are actually installed in low-income housing and state housing in South Australia, and it's um, remarkable how those resources can be delivered, um, cut their costs and also deliver a valuable service to the rest of the grid, and um, I think that's a fantastic innovation. Look, I'd just like to ask a couple of questions now about your step change scenario, because um, look, we're off all this bushfire emergency all around us we're just about to enter this massive heat wave um we're seeing a precarious summer ahead of us we've just come out of the Madrid climate talks we're wondering can we actually you know keep emissions below two degrees or 1.5 degrees as we all agreed we would try to do in the paris climate target and the step change scenario in the isp is the one that addresses that um what's really interesting about it is that it basically dials up a forecast or a scenario of 90 percent renewables by 2040 which seems like a very long way away from here now and, and a lot more renewables tell us a bit more about that scenario and just reassure us that um, one this can be done and two that the lights will stay on so look, Giles, I think uh, technically uh, it will be feasible to transition to a very high renewable penetration uh, scenario. Um, but what it requires us to do is actually act quickly um, and act thoughtfully. And that's what we're trying to describe in this step change scenario. Actually, a really interesting observation about the step change scenario. The, the step change scenario in some sense is actually not significantly different to any of our other scenarios, with one exception, and it's just simply around timing. What we need to do to achieve the step change scenario is we basically need to bring forward all of the projects um, around, you know, building replacement generation, building uh, appropriate in, uh, interconnectors, building um, all of the other system services out just 10, 20 years faster than we would have to otherwise do. That requires forward thinking. It also requires coordination because we we already see that if we're doing this in an uncoordinated way, actually the, the, the cost and time to build a lot of those projects can actually blow out and, and getting clarity and certainty uh, from a um, political level of, of what we want to do will actually then help to help industry to align behind those goals and then deliver that in the in the least cost way. Um, the other thing that I should maybe also mention in, in case of this uh, step change scenario, I mean, the, the, the technical challenges I think are solvable, uh, but they're still significant. And in addition to the ISP, we're actually uh, starting to conduct some um, very detailed modeling uh, as part of sort of a a supporting study, which we call the Renewable Integration Study, where we look at 
um, a lot of the issues around system strength, um, uh, ramp rates, frequency control, um, et cetera, et cetera, to ensure that we're actually really uh, dotting the I's and crossing the T's on, on the technical detail. And in my view, a lot of the technical questions we actually already have to solve in the next five years and maximum 10 years anyway, because we are already seeing instantaneous uh, penetration of renewables um, very close to or even in some cases where you have export capacity above 100%. So once we can manage from a system security point of view, uh, the high levels of instantaneous uh, penetration, then really it becomes just a, a process of scaling that up. But that will be the proof point and we'll reach that proof point in the next five years. And, and to what extent is the challenge here the fact that you're transitioning from more is the fact that um, you're transitioning from one technology to another? It's not really, it seems to me, the fact that this new technology won't work. It's actually how you manage that transition. You're going from a synchronous um, system to an asynchronous system, centralized generation versus larger distributed generation, vertebrate technology replacing, um, you know, spinning machines. Is is that where the um, the challenge lies in in managing that transition? Oh, you're absolutely right there. I think the end point is clear. I think the for us, the big question is, is how do we get there and how do we get there in a smooth, predictable and cost effective way? Um, just maybe one, one, I think, sort of nuance. We are going from a system that has been historically very homogeneous with really very largely dominated by coal generators and gas generators. And we are now moving to a system where we have a whole plethora of different technologies that we need to orchestrate. And that's also where the discussion that um, David and I just had a, a few minutes ago really becomes critical. It's actually how do you integrate across all of these different technologies and get the most out of it so that really any dollar we spend um, on our energy system, we get maximum return out of it. And I'd just like to ask about renewable energy zones, which we haven't uh, discussed yet. Uh, but it's obviously a key part of the ISP. I guess you, you divided those of the REZs, the ISP divides them into three groups, those that are sort of needed now or could be used now, those that could be used as more coal plants closed, and presumably that those other ones would need to be accelerated if the coal plants close early, and, and then a third group. And to develop the REZs, uh, there's a, quite a detailed scoring uh, provided for the renewable resource, wind and solar, uh, the MLF factor, um, uh, the potential for uh, adding in storage, and I guess uh, the closest to load. I just wondered when you could, could you just for 30 seconds tell me how you combined all those factors? Were they all equally weighted? Because if I look at renewable energy zones in some other areas like Texas, they just kind of went on the resource quality alone and didn't worry about anything else. And I guess it matters to all the developers that are going to be looking at those, their projects and trying to think, are they in a zone or not in a zone? And then after that, Alex, uh, if you can remember, <laughs> which I'm sure you can, we, we've got the New South Wales has announced its first zone. It struck me as quite a strange zone because there didn't seem to be much um, uh, scope to put, um, uh, you know, a, a pumped hydro or anything out there. And it seemed to be a reasonable distance from the load and, not all that much wind resource, but the map in the in the ISP appendix um, shows a lot more wind resource than the New South Wales map does. So I, 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 how good a zone is it? 
Okay, so let, let's actually start at the top with the renewable energy zones. Uh, we, we think that's a really uh, important concept um, uh, that will come out of this um, integrated system plan because when you look at this at the highest level, over the next 20 years, as I said before, we need over 30 gigawatts of renewables and even you know up to maybe 47 gigawatts if we're going into a, a step change scenario. But when you look at what residual connection capacity do we have in the existing network, um, we, we only have around 13 gigawatts left. And um, as I also mentioned before, if we're trying to connect renewables in uh, areas that are congested, that's incredibly hard and sometimes close to impossible, um, which uh, is actually very detrimental to, to investment. Um, and uh, therefore, we are making a very strong push to um, get those zones developed. Uh, those zones come actually in, in sort of almost two different ways. One is, as part of this ISP, we are suggesting a number of um, interconnectors to balance the load in the system more evenly. And one of the nice side benefits of that is, is that automatically and, and, and um, simultaneously unlocks uh, new renewable connection capacity, which is great. But we also come to the realization that once those interconnectors are built, um, more renewable zones will be required that are not necessarily just interconnectors. And that's really where those, um, where those zones come in. Um, you're right, there are some uh, criteria listed in the back of the report that highlight uh, all of the different factors that sort of in our discussions we came across as being quite important to consider. And, and certainly what I think is quite important is, is that we need to look at more than just resource quality. Um, uh, it's actually very difficult to combine those factors into sort of a very easy metric and it will require um, a good discussion and a robust discussion to actually help prioritize um, investment in those different zones. And that's really one of the key discussions that we want to have during this consultation process is we, we actually want to work with developers, we want to work um, with governments to ensure that we are considering the right criteria and and we are making um, the right trade-off decisions that as we are then getting into the range where we ultimately have to develop those zones, um, um, we are actually developing ultimately the best zones in the in the best interest of, of Australia. Um, and one of those, uh, I think you've highlighted is, is the um, is the central west zone of New South Wales. I think, first of all, I think it's it's a really a positive move by the New South Wales government that they recognise the importance of renewable energy zones and and basically want to develop uh, develop them. Um, when you actually look at uh, the the cost to unlock this zone and the resource quality, I think the central west zone is actually um, a very attractive zone. And what we will certainly be doing um, is, as part of this consultation phase, work with the New South Wales government and and sort of with the broader uh, community of developers to to make sure that um, we're ultimately getting that zone right. 
Um, Alex, it's um, probably time to um, start getting towards the end um, of our time, but um, I've just got a couple of other questions, and maybe David's got another quick one. Um, first of my two last questions are about the connection process. A lot of solar and wind farms have um, been suffering connection delays, and there's been commissioning delays. I mean, in some instances, it's up to a year. Do you envision, what, what, what do you think needs to happen to make this whole process and this whole connection thing easier? Is it a change of rules? Is it developers and contractors paying more attention to detail is it a mixture of the two oh look i think let me firstly say it's 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 an incredibly painful and frustrating process for everyone involved i i'm actually quite worried about it because i'm worried about the um deterrent it creates for investment in australia um especially in an environment as, as this report highlights, where we do need a lot of investment uh, into our energy system going forward. I think the situation that we are in at the moment has, has sort of multiple root causes. But I think at, in essence, um, we have a system that has never been designed to take large amounts of renewables. And there are certainly some areas where we have effectively reached the carrying capacity of that particular part of the network. And what this requires us to do is um, we are having to look at this at an extraordinary amount of detail. And frankly, when I talk to um, developers or OEMs, uh, I often hear that we have probably the most stringent standard in the world and i think that is possibly true uh, it is because we are actually facing some of the most challenging conditions on the network um i think there is there is a lot we can do about it in the in the short term and in the long term i think in the short term i think um, as a system operator we actually want to be more transparent to give people more information about what is actually happening on the system uh, rule changes help in that process so the AMC has just um, uh, put through a rule change that actually allows us in the first instance to share the interest uh, in each part of the grid. Um, we also appreciate there's a, there's a real challenge with um, actually access to um, the models required to describe the system um, and then to tune plants in it. Um, we're sort of between a rock and a hard place in that space where these models contain a lot of um, confidential and proprietary information. So um, we can't actually hand them out, but at the same time, people need that model um, to actually tune their plants. So we, at the moment, sort of do it on behalf of, uh, of projects, which is not a very good situation. So we are actually in the process of overcoming that uh, by uh, having a new digital platform solution that we're actually just about to, to trial with uh, with a number of projects and then um, once we've sort of um, resolved some of the initial issues we're, we're actually planning to roll that out more more broadly um, I think there may also be requirements to maybe look at things like the the open access regime uh, the way we are we're, we're dealing with the with the do no harm provision to to maybe ensure that we are um, having a more efficient mechanism to utilize the maximum capacity that's in the network um, at the moment. But frankly, in the long run, um, we need to build a network infrastructure that 
is able to uh, securely take um, and then export um, the power from really good areas where we have renewable res uh, resource to to where the demand is and and that's really where the whole concept around renewable energy zones comes from i've got uh, one last question about the um, coming summer um alex um obviously sort of fingers crossed it's um you know just the forecast of the coming week looks um, serious enough um with um, some severe heat waves um happening and possibly the um the hottest day that australia's ever experienced um i think your summit readiness plan um highlighted that one of the great risks are these sort of heat waves that sort of last for days across multiple states and the stress that that puts on um you know particularly some thermal generators and i think there's some um, um, a couple of thermal generators coming back into the system. Um, I suppose you're prepared as um, you could possibly be. So look, the the, the team uh, at AEMO together with um, the generators, the network service providers um, and, and the various governments have put over the last couple of months a lot of work in getting the summer readiness plan right. Um, I think people are prepared. Um, we have procured... Um, uh, road resources. So if, if we really come close to um, a, a severe event, we have actually over a gigawatt of additional capacity available. And by the way, that's there's actually a lot of really innovative things coming through in that process, particularly based on demand response, which I think is a really important mechanism that we need to um, foster more going forward to help us deal with um, potential shortfalls of uh, of power. But I, th I think the fact remains that it's going to be a very challenging summer, um, and it is it is going to be a challenging summer because, as the as the Bureau of Metrology has has uh, forecast, um, we we have to deal with with warmer than than normal temperatures, um, and that's you know that's probably one of the consequences that we need to get unfortunately used to that we have to deal with um, hotter and hotter summers, uh, which makes it ever more challenging um, for the system to respond. But um, look, we are, we are really grateful um, for all of the support that um, I think the whole industry has provided and the good collaboration in the industry to, to I think, get us ready as best as we can um, to work together through this summer. Uh, I, I've got one tiny question, Alex, and you don't need to spend very long answering it, but uh, it's just a technical one. I read up a lot on uh, Nash Corno bidding because uh, that's how I think you work out what power stations are going to be dispatched uh, in some of the models. Could could you just maybe for our listeners uh, explain how that what the difference between that and say a merit order uh, 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 dispatching system would be? I, I think it results in higher prices and slightly different market shares. <laughs> you wanted a short answer to that question. Um, so, um, look, uh, when we do market modeling, and I should actually say a lot of the um, uh, the ISP modeling doesn't rely on uh, on market modeling and, and uh, sort of Nash Cornell um, approaches. That's that's sort of we've looked at that in in separate issues, but. This really comes back a little bit to market design and also the behaviors of players within the market. Um, when uh, you have um, sort of concentration of players in the market, um, then it really depends on the, the bidding behavior and the market power that the different players have. And that's actually a very 
difficult to model uh, approach and Nash Cornell is, is, is one of the approaches. And you're right, if there is sort of um, market power that can actually lead to higher prices, and that's just one of the, one of the ways to to model that. Um, but in the end, it's it's ultimately an an imperfection that we're trying to model in the in the pure market uh, assessment, where uh, ultimately uh, you want a market that that converges to um, uh, least marginal cost. Lowest marginal cost. So I, th I think the conclusion you come to is if, if uh, you have a, a corner market with many players, it's the same as having uh, perfect competition. But when you've only got two or three or four players, uh, prices for consumers are higher than they otherwise would be. And uh, I might just state that, you know, if you're using that modelling, there's kind of an implicit uh, recognition that there is a degree of market power for some generators in the system, which is fine. We're all used to that, and it's probably going to get less in the future as more as more players come in through the distributed side of things. Um, as Giles says, and uh, I'll I'll leave him to do the formal thanks. But uh, I, I wanted to just say thanks very much for Alex's fantastic explanation of uh, this incredibly interesting and complex uh, topic. And I can't think of anyone in Australia who's more on top of the whole thing than you. So. Thanks for taking the time to share share some of your thoughts with us. Thank you, David. That's been an absolute pleasure. Charles, sorry, don't want to cut into you. No, well, I was just going to. No, I was just going to add my thanks as well, Alex. So thanks for joining um, um, on the podcast, and good luck for the summer. And um, and we look forward to hearing more about your inter renewable integration plan and the final details of the ISP and um, to the transition into the future. Charles, David, thank you so much for the opportunity. No worries. Look, it's fantastic to have you on. It's a fantastic way to end the year. Um, I'd just like to spend use this opportunity, one, to thank all our listeners out there. And uh, we get fantastic feedback when we turn up at conferences and see people around the place. And uh, we really do appreciate that. There's been more than half a million downloads on the Energy Insiders podcast. And um, look, while not quite as high rating as some of the great crime stories you'll get, um, I, I think it's still pretty interesting and, and, and a fantastic show of interest. Um, I'd, of course, like to thank our sponsors, um, Solar energy all the way through the year and right from the start um, really do appreciate your assistance guys without it we could not without you we could not do it um, also to what watchers who are with us uh, also from the start until about halfway through the year and more recently evergen um, thank you very much for jumping on board with us and um, we really do appreciate your help we're going to take a break of about four or five weeks we're going to be back in the new year um, if you're at a loss of things to do over holidays sitting on the beach do download our past um, episodes. There's also Solar Insiders and there's the Driven Podcast. And uh, we look forward to resuming the conversation in the new year. David, um, it's been fantastic and um, we'll start again soon and um, hope you enjoy the break. Thanks, Charles. Thanks, to, thanks, thanks to all. Okay. Thanks for everyone. And also thanks to our producer and Delaney yes. and um, all the other people who've given us technical advice and contributions and feedback and... Um, that's it for this episode. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, providing fully integrated and optimised energy intelligence and storage for residential and commercial sites. With technology developed in Australia with the CSIRO, Evergen customers can maximise the return on their sustainable energy investment. Visit evergen.com.au and take control of your energy bills. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solaray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. 
visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.